We also went fly fishing and caught a, a rainbow trout, which was a reintroduced species into that ecosystem. That experience is natural capital at its best. Hi, I'm Charlotte Connell here from Climate Salad. We're a community of climate tech founders, investors, supporters, and the climate curious. And our whole mission is to help a thousand climate tech companies and create 10 global successes by 2030. And I'm joined here by Mick. Thanks, Charlotte. Yeah, great to be here. We're looking forward to this podcast. You're about to hear a podcast from Alex Logan from Cecil. And one thing I loved about it is just a really straightforward explanation of what natural capital is and then really showing how massive an opportunity is, especially for Australia. Charlotte, what did you like about this podcast? I mean, I, I really love Alex as a founder and I, I get off on these geeky guys working behind screens, doing their digital platform product building, but being immersed in nature and doing it for nature. Like I got a real kick out of hearing about the team and how they you know, roll up their sleeves, they go fly fishing and they do it because they have so much purpose in every day to make sure that we look after this planet. Yeah, it's such a genuine connection. Well, here we go. Podcast with Alex Logan from Cecil. Good to be here with you both, Charlotte and Mick. I am the co-founder and CEO of Cecil and we are building out infrastructure for natural capital markets around the world. So what exactly is natural capital? Like when we think of climate solutions, we go to solar panels, carbon accounting. What's this natural capital you're talking about? Can you give an explainer 101? Yeah, so there are many definitions that some might have read on the web before joining this podcast. But just to take a bit of a different angle on it, the reason that we think about the market that we're playing in as natural capital is because we strongly believe that there's actually a dual crisis that uh, we are faced with over the next 50 to 100 years. And that's both a climate crisis and a nature crisis. So as you mentioned, Charlotte, it's not always front of mind when someone thinks about climate to be thinking about uh, natural capital. But we often also think of a bit of a visual with, uh, I think at times we have a carbon tunnel vision. And a big part of the way that we think about the opportunity in the market that we're playing in is beyond carbon. So natural ecosystems around the world have so many additional benefits. And by framing the market that we are playing in as natural capital, we enable ourselves to think about, yes, the carbon benefit to restoring land ecosystems around the world, but also be inclusive of biodiversity and the local communities that support these land ecosystems. So for us, on a selfish level almost, that's why we think about our market as, as natural capital, because we truly think that for our vision to be realized, we need to be solving much more than just the carbon problem. And Alex, non-natural capital, um, feels funny to say that, but um, capital currency money has been managed by humans for over 5,000 years. There's just like masses of infrastructure and understanding on which, which that is all built natural capital and establishing that understanding it like where are we in that journey well i think that capital in being involved in managing and supporting land ecosystems has been there i mean we have markets for agriculture for forestry but i think that one challenge that we've probably had is that we haven't necessarily aligned incentives around the benefits of that natural capital so we have, let's take agriculture as, as an example here, 
uh, and food systems, we have incentivized uh, at times uh, pretty reckless behavior on in many ways degrading land as opposed to leveraging it for resources and also uh, respecting those those land ecosystems. So I think that uh, you're right, uh, these markets have existed, but a big shift that we need to make if we want to preserve these ecosystems to support us, uh, whether it's in agriculture, food systems or, or other ecosystems, we really need to rethink what we're valuing. Uh, and excitingly, we're seeing the increase in value of agricultural land, particularly in Australia. And a big part of that is that we are starting to value other parts of these ecosystems, which is really, really exciting. You've mentioned before in conversations the size of the opportunity of this natural capital market. Could you touch on that? What What is the opportunity? Yeah, sometimes it's... Apart from saving our planet. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's almost at times overwhelming because uh, it is that the numbers that we talk about are so significant. Similar, I think uh, it occurs across the, the climate ecosystem, but the opportunity around investing in natural capital uh, and uh, viewing it as an investment quality asset globally will result in trillions of dollars of investment. There's a huge amount of scale of opportunity that comes with these financial markets. But at this point in time, I think uh, we aren't there yet, uh, although we are seeing momentum. There are a lot of challenges to solve for us to, uh, to really see that market form and to, to realize what that needs to look like over the next 10 to 20 years. So the sheer scale of it around the world, um, we're talking about billions of hectares uh, of opportunity uh, and trillions of dollars. So these are very, very big numbers. But uh, when we break it down to the fundamentals of that market operating efficiently, we have a, a lot of work to be done. And getting that work done from Australia, we've, we've, we're a big country with a small market, but we, we play big in resources, in agriculture, do pretty well in forestry. I don't fully know that space, but can you talk about Australia's role globally and are, are there other companies who are leading the way in Australia? Yeah. So, I mean, we are fortunate with the ecosystem in Australia and, and to break down different parts of uh, what we see as really exciting, there are the teams that we work really closely with who are actually operating this land. So there are farmers around Australia, there are funds around Australia who are operating this land. So uh, I think there's a really great opportunity with the teams uh, who we're supporting uh, with our software to effectively make a, a really big transition in, in many ways to the operating system uh, for these ecosystems. I think there were also... Uh, in combination with that, there are challenges with natural ecosystems. Uh, their ability to be resilient in an increase in temperature and some of the climate impacts that we're going to see uh, is uh, often criticized as a problem for investing in these, these types of ecosystems. But uh, what I get really excited about and, and often geek out on is the teams that are actually working with technology to increase the resilience of these types of ecosystems. So in Australia, we have Lone Bio, which is bringing uh, to market some incredible technology around uh, enhancing those great benefits of sucking carbon out of the sky and, and storing it in, uh, in soil and making that more permanent. Uh, so we're seeing, yeah, fantastic technologies from 
uh, R&D and, and universities in Australia coming out and, and looking to, to make these ecosystems more resilient. I think that we also have a, a tremendous amount of financing opportunities. So there, uh, if you ever follow Agri-Investor, which is a, a great publication that basically every day it's, it's very heartwarming to see another fund announced or another amount of capital getting poured into this, this space. So I think there's great momentum within the finance ecosystem in Australia in, in recognizing that value. As I mentioned before, some of the property prices have increased tremendously in the last 12 to 18 months as we start to look at these assets very, very differently. And finally, yeah, Cecil is one of many uh, parts of the value chain um, that is getting and becoming more digitally native. So um, we see a lot of startups playing in this space, looking at the measurement, reporting and verification, uh, which is a really important part of uh, what's going to make this, this market investment quality. In Australia and across New Zealand, Holden IQ recently released their Climate Tech 100 for this region. And there was only three in that nature-based biosphere solutions. And Cecil, of course, was one of them. And Lord of Trees and another uh, a company that, that plants uh, and increases those nature-based solutions. Because when we think about that, we think about, oh, you're, you're planting trees. But Cecil's a, a SaaS platform. Who are your customers and what role do you play in helping value the natural capital sphere? So I think probably my first comment would be on the limited amount of number of people in the biosphere category. I think it's a really challenging job to categorize things within climate and Holland IQ is doing an amazing job at working through that on a, on a global scale. I think there's a lot more people um, who are on that map who are contributing to a very similar market that, that we are, which is exciting. But for us, we have effectively started on the supply side of these markets uh, and the teams that we work with are not producers themselves in, in an agricultural sense, but the teams that are managing portfolios of projects across Australia uh, within uh, programs to support the restoration of a, a wide network of producers around Australia. So we aggregate to that level. Typically, they might be asset managers or project developers. Uh, but increasingly, we're seeing pull from the other side of the market and supporting those teams to better report back to, to their stakeholders as we start to see the investment come into to this space. Alex, the podcast we did with Olympia, we, it was really interesting to see that most people don't think about waste, right? That's kind of so many of the problems of climate are just hidden away. You don't, the average person doesn't have to think about them. Like when you're talking to... To people who may not fully grasp the big detail around natural capital and how it all needs to be managed, like what do you say to help them connect to to the problem and and and, and understand it? Like it's it's obviously not a day to day problem for the average person, but um, how do you get them to to care about something that's so big and so important? I think there's a lot of different ways of influencing. It is my job to sort of <laughs> communicate. But, uh, and even in that question, uh, my mind went to, to different ways in which uh, we find it really important to communicate to different stakeholders. But maybe to, to break it down a little bit, I think often um, having the right analog for what our product is, is looking to do. Uh, so we think a lot about uh, Carter, which is cap table management out of the US. Um, they started with organizing cap tables on uh, for private companies. And increasingly um, in aggregating a lot of that information and supporting those startups transitioned into then also being able to create uh, a lot more confidence on the investment side. So we see a lot of analogs to 
where we've started, uh, but also uh, how we continue to support these teams to attract more investment into their portfolios. So that's one analog that we think about from a, from a product perspective. But maybe uh, if I was to look more broadly at the market, this is a, effectively a capital activations problem that we have right now. When we look at supply and demand, going back to basics, there is a, a tremendous amount of demand for uh, investing and finding new asset classes to invest in that have a positive outcome on the climate. We feel, though, that on the supply side, it's not always viewed as an investment quality asset right now. Uh, so the supply side, we really need to lift that up um, and continue to find ways in which we bring rigorous investment quality information to that demand uh, and start to uh, find ways in which that financing can flow into these projects and, and really grow this market to what it needs to be. Uh, so I think going back to simple sort of business school aspects of things uh, is, is something that yeah allows people to relate to it a bit more as well. Alex, where did you come up with this solution? Like I heard you say before about like the things that you like to geek out on. Were you a tree geek to start with or a, you know, <laughs> a nature geek or were you a product developer? Like what, where, how did you go from Alex Logan working away in software to creator of this incredible climate solution? So yeah, for me personally, uh, I spent 10 years working as a product manager, first of all in the uh, Sydney ecosystem, uh, Sydney local tech ecosystem, but then fortunately had a journey at Boston Consulting Group, which exposed me to a very diverse range of perspectives on what matters and what problems are really important to solve. For me, really the journey started with what I like to describe as I wasn't getting out of bed each morning with as much energy. And I was lacking, although I had yeah a, a fantastic privileged opportunity to build products zero to one over and over again uh, and work with really amazing teams, I was yeah really lacking that purpose. And unfortunately, uh, whilst building an insurance venture in Malaysia, met my co-founder, Rory. And we shared that similar feeling of wanting to uh, explore what it would be like to have that purpose and really reflecting on if we look back in 20 or 30 years, what were we going to be proud of? Uh, and that kicked off a, a really amazing conversation between Rory and myself. And for us, it was a lot of uh, very selfish exploration at the beginning, uh, looking at how we were going to uh, find for ourselves to uh, stop using takeaway cups, small problems that we were thinking about. But ultimately, we started to get exposed to the systemic problems that existed in global industries at BCG. And we explored many ways at which we could try to uh, support that. Uh, unfortunately, the timing isn't always right when you're at a, a consulting firm. And uh, despite our best efforts, uh, we were getting staffed on different things. So that catalyzed us to think about, well, like, do we need to go and do this ourselves? And I'll never forget the moment when it became really clear. I was driving back, uh, had just visited Rory when I was in Byron and the fire in my stomach after driving back from Byron was just so compelling. It was something that I hadn't felt since I probably started my first job at HelloFresh uh, when it first launched in Australia. It wasn't, that hadn't had that feeling in a very long time. So I think 
to answer your question, there were um, many things that contributed to having that moment of, of clarity and, and wanting to go and solve this problem and also a level of patience to explore and move past just that surface level of, of what that purpose was going to be. And we worked really hard to understand what the biggest problems were and, and how we we're going to have the biggest impact. And that's what led to solving this problem, which is an ambitious problem to to look to, to solve, but one that yeah definitely gets me out of bed every morning very quickly. And from two founders, you've grown a team and you've got a real global team. Can you talk about how how you've built that group, that how do you manage them globally? And what's their like how do that how do they buy into the vision? Yeah, it's probably the thing that I'm most proud of is the team that we've managed to build in in the last 12 months. And what is so inspiring about everyone that works at Cecil is how unique each of their journey is to working with purpose and working at our organization. They are very different, each and every one of their stories as to how they uh, sort of made their way to Cecil. But to speak to one of them uh, was sort of straight out of university, uh, exploring opportunities after doing environmental sciences at, at university. We actually had an initial conversation of which there were no real skill set matches for what was going to support Cecil at that point in time. And we had a coffee and that person went home and made a commitment that they were going to find a way to work at Cecil either way. And then about three weeks later, I uh, had a, a, a data upload problem whereby I needed like some more hands on deck. And that person just willingly jumped at it, uh, not really knowing what that was going to, to mean for them um, and the amount of time that he's now spent in spreadsheets. But the willingness to come in and, and just on a limb take that opportunity is, I think, yeah, different to everyone else, but very similar in um, just wanting to really work on that purpose. And um, it doesn't matter what it takes. It's just going to be going in the right direction and, and realizing what that opportunity is. Sounds very similar to Mick. If you have a coffee with him, you end up working for Climate Salad or doing something else. So be careful. Anyone listening, don't have coffees with Mick or do. <laughs> just be aware. Just be re re really aware. Be aware. It's, it's interesting, right? There's so many people so passionate about climate that expose them a little bit of an opportunity and they jump at it. Like that's so, that's thrilling. And, you know, Charlotte is absolute testament to that uh, from, from last year. So I concur with you, Alex. Um, and I love hearing the, uh, the natural capital bird life in the background of the call there, <laughs> um, Alex. I noticed that your team, I mean, I, on LinkedIn, it just keeps growing and growing and it, it's a testament to the success of Cecil. And I noticed too that your retreats are always out in nature you like to get the team hands-on dirty. Why is that? Yeah, I guess there's two aspects to that, which I think are really important. The first is the framing of them as retreats, which sometimes I need to be careful as to how glamorous I describe that to our investors, because there's a lot of work that definitely goes on at those retreats. But uh, it's in the DNA of, of Cecil, actually, when Rory and I first started thinking about what this opportunity is we went away to Crescent Head uh, and we spent a weekend uh, thinking about the opportunity. And there's actually a blog post from a, a long time ago that was came off the back of that uh, retreat that we had together. So there's part of our DNA that is going away and having really intimate conversations about what the problem is and, and what we want to solve. 
But I think also combining that with, yeah, we wake up each morning and roll over and stare in front of a screen. We're very, at times, disconnected from the work that actually goes on on the ground. And the best example of this, we were very privileged to stay at the Wilmont property just outside of Armadale. And that experience is natural capital uh, at its best. We were looking at mixed pastures. We had rotational grazing with cattle on the land, which is contributing to uplifting the soil health. We also went fly fishing and caught a, a rainbow trout, which was a reintroduced species into that ecosystem. So there's something really special about the opportunity that we get to actually connect with what this looks like. Uh, because yeah, we crunch numbers for our teams that we support, we build software, but inherently we uh, need to spend time actually uh, understanding what, what's going out and what, what it looks like. So it's a really special time just to, to get out there and, and see it and, and, and feel it as well. Yeah, that's that's really great. I totally get that importance to reconnect. And it's important for every person, right? And it was another thing we also touched on with Olympia, but the uh, that, that connection back to, to nature. Feel that there is a, just a, a big rebalancing back towards nature, which I think is, is really, really, really important. Uh, one thing that's deeper in that area around agriculture and natural capital is the people who've helped you grow this business. And I know you've that Sarah Nolet from Tenacious Ventures. When I first started getting into climate, I was lucky enough to spend a bit of time with Sarah and I. it took about two minutes for, for her to dive deep into this new space for me to realise I just had no no idea of the depth and the the specialised nature of it all. Can you talk about in terms of you know, the impact that people like Sarah at Tenacious Ventures uh, can have on a business like yours and what does that specialist and combined knowledge uh, do to help? So... I like talking to Sarah about this in the sense that one thing that she framed back to me once, which I often uh, quote now, is that they're a ag climate-focused fund, which seems niche almost. But when you, as you describe them, when you get talking to them, it touches so many different systems around the world. And actually, the amount of opportunities that they see as a climate and agricultural fund is a lot. And it's actually a really difficult job to categorize things and for them to understand where they need to focus and what things they can go really deep on. And yeah, they're, I mean, with their backgrounds of where they've come from, they're experts in strategically looking in very specifically to some of these different verticals. So to have that type of experience and to be able to have that as something that they can go really deep on. I speak a lot about my experience in capital raising as, yeah, you can get a response from basically any fund around the world if you put climate and software into the headline, but you don't often find the third or fourth conversation, uh, the level of depth and understanding of what this world needs to look like in 10 to 20 years as much but it's very clear that, yeah, if anything, uh, Matthew and Sarah are pushing you to think about what it really is going to look like uh, and how these markets are going to be created around these opportunities. Yeah, it, it is a privilege on our side to, to have them and to be able to get into those discussions. But I think it's an important lesson for people who are on this journey uh, within climate to yeah expect that and also really test yourself. Are you having those conversations where someone truly does see the vision for this market that you have 
and that's going to be a, a really important partner for you. And we've been really fortunate that uh, anyone who has come on the journey with us has pushed our thinking on that. And I think that's going to serve us really well in the future. Could we tap into this capital raising? Because I know that you you do lean into the climate seller community and you're always offering help and advice on, on those early stage founders that are looking to capital raise. And I know that you have been quite successful and you've been able to establish Cecil, not just here in Australia, but globally. Recently, we were in the US and Michael Molitor, climate tech mentor and advisor for Cecil, Sophie Perdom, uh, founder of Climate Tech VC, who looks at thousands of climate tech startups, mentioned that she was quite disappointed she wasn't on your cap table in the recent race. So to get someone like Sophie to say, like, she's taken notice of Cecil, loves what you do and disappointed she's not on the cap table. How has that journey been? And what advice do you give for other startups looking to establish themselves globally? Yeah, I think that this is quite general advice for, I think, anyone looking to go on the founder journey, but it takes a a lot of resilience and a lot of humility through the experience to be able to really make it all the way through and develop those relationships. So yeah, there have been way more challenges than there have been successes uh, along this journey, which is a really, really important thing to recognize. But to speak to some of the relationships that we've built that have led to really meaningful ongoing relationships were the ones that started early. So we knew Sarah and Matthew at Tenacious almost 12 months. Actually, the first interaction we had was with Cass Mao, uh, and that was at a very, very early stage in the journey. And I don't know what Cass would remember from that conversation. And I don't know if it would have anything to do with what Cecil is today, but it was a relationship. And that led to uh, a conversation with with Matthew. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's led to a, a really meaningful relationship within our business uh, over the last uh, almost 12 months as them as an investor. So that's one example where it was 12 months. In every other example, I've known investors for six months before uh, we've uh, got to the point of initiating a a capital raise conversation. So uh, it's age old advice, but I think that through that resilience and the humility to build meaningful relationships, we've been able to do that successfully, but it's not the end of the journey for us. And we'll continue to need to develop those relationships as we grow. And that's a, a constant in sort of my daily life on an ongoing basis. So yeah, pretty general advice, I would say, but um, very applicable to this space as well. Expanding as as well on Charlotte's comment that you have been really generous in your support of other companies in Climate Seller, despite your busyness. And and this is totally a loaded question for boosting Charlotte and I's ego in the work we do, but uh, we focus on the climate tech founders and their teams. So a lot of people don't see the, the inner uh, workings of of climate cell all the time. Can you can you give us share a bit of the sense of like what that community is like and what value do you think it creates for for the ecosystem? Yeah, I think that we're still at the very early stages of what this community needs to look like. I think that I might have mentioned this at the end of year celebration uh, in 2021, but I would like to see those events get bigger and bigger over the next five to 10 years, but it's relatively small if you compare it to FinTech in Australia or uh, SaaS in Australia. So we're at the very beginning of 
what this looks like. And that's notwithstanding there have been people uh, who I have a lot of respect for that have been working in this space in Australia for a lot longer than that and arguably with less resources than we have now. Uh, so there's a recognition that it's not new to some people, but I still think that we're at a really small scale. So for uh, us as a community in Australia, we need to make the most of that while we have the chance, which is a lot more intimate relationships, a lot more helping that can be done whilst it's still at this scale. But I think we still have a long way to go. If I was to compare my experience to what it is like in Australia in comparison to some of the conversations and some of the communities that are building in the US, there's a lot of momentum there. So I would challenge us to also think about why aren't we growing faster and why aren't we doing more? Because I was reflecting on this with someone after uh, one of the two climate speaking events at, at Sunrise last week. These are the most exciting opportunities. And I feel very strongly about that that will come up over the next 10 to 20 years. I mean, I'm constantly fascinated by the amazing work that people are doing with ocean tech, biochar. I mean, there are new amazing things that pop up every single day. Even just looking at the ecosystem building around carbon removal. I mean, there is so much fascinating stuff going on that we're really, really just at the beginning. And if I was to provide any feedback for Australia, it's that, yeah, we need to keep moving really, really fast. But again, I think that, yeah, we also need to respect the opportunity that we have and, and climate salad as a community and the intimacy that it creates between different humans, I think is really important to set the right foundations. It's beautiful to hear you say that, Alex, because it's so easy to have that feeling of dread come up, you know, post COP27, post the IPCC reports, the flooding that was preceded by a drought. But you are, and we are as well, in these unique positions that we get to be immersed in the climate tech solutions. What is it that gives you hope? I think it has to come down to what I was speaking about before, that these are the most interesting problems that we will solve in the next 20 to 30 years. And the most curious minds that I know and some of the general population is curious about like how we're going to solve these problems. So I think that there's a, a massive amount of uh, recognition of what needs to get done now and also a lot of yeah curiosity about, well, how do we solve that? And that's really healthy for solutions, I think. Uh, there are still people who probably are a bit defeated by how big the, the problem is, but but I think that the entrepreneurial spirit in, in a lot of people um, around the world is coming out uh, to solve these problems, just like we saw in what it would have been like 10 or 20 years ago around building a digital platform and allowing that to be accessed by anyone around the world. Uh, I think that the same type of people are now obsessed with, I can completely reimagine an, an industry or a market and I'm going to do that and it's going to have a huge upside and impact on the climate. That is the type of things that I think I get most buoyed by is that the way in which people are talking about what they're going to do and how that's going to have such a significant impact. Nice. Alex, can you break down for us? What, what is the key difference between carbon credits, offsets, 
high integrity credits or high integrity offsets. What what are the differences? Yeah, so I think this is a is quite a large topic, but to break it down at least in one framework for for people that are listening, I think in the world of carbon we need to reduce emissions rapidly. That's the most important part of what we need to do right now. And to reduce emissions, uh, you can transition from uh, different types of energy to renewable energy. So there's a huge amount of opportunity in in reduction. But there's a reason that we call it net zero commitments, because uh, there will still be business as usual, and there will be emissions in the atmosphere. Um, And we've already gone past a point at which the atmosphere can uh, manage emissions that are up there. So we do need to remove emissions from the atmosphere as well. And this is where credits come in. So if you are continuing to uh, have emissions go into the atmosphere, you use credits uh, as opposed to reduction. Now, credits uh, can be used in different forms uh, and you can have an offset uh, or you can have an inset, uh, which is two different mechanisms for uh, leveraging that credit. And there are different types of credits as well. Uh, So we have uh, avoided emissions credits. We have removal credits. Uh, So there's, again, different levels of support for those types of credits. Uh, And then you have uh, the quality of of the credit. Uh, So looking at uh, its different attributes and the real outcomes that it's producing. So there's... Again, uh, a lot of question marks over, yeah, and and reports that come out around the integrity of these different mechanisms. But I think it's important to remember that those definitions are really important. uh, And we need to be clear on when we're talking about integrity, what does that mean? Are we talking about it within a specific industry that uh, might be part of an insetting program um, and what that looks like? So it's a complex topic that I think we are seeing a lot of frameworks get developed around the world to continue to manage the risks that are associated with it. I think that uh, ultimately, though, where we need to get to is a common understanding of making these investment quality attributes a core part of, of what any credit looks like as part of any offsetting or insetting program. Thank you. You're right. We always just think of trees as really great, but those beautiful blue gums all across San Francisco, they're actually not meant to be there. In Australia, fantastic, increases biodiversity. In the States, maybe not so much. Yes, and that comes back to that earlier point that I made around carbon tunnel vision and a big part of even just using natural capital as the market that we are playing in is to remove ourselves from that tunnel vision and to think about those additional benefits outside of carbon credits as well. Well, thanks, Alex. Um, love hearing the story and, and the journey being on. We're just going to do a couple of quick fire questions here. So um, just starting with other than running a company that's trying to solve these massive problems around nature-based solutions, I mean, what's one positive climate action that you do in your personal life that uh, you'd like to share? So probably at the moment, it's my wardrobe. I'm thinking a lot about how my wardrobe looks over the next 10 to 20 years as well. I keep on saying 10 to 20 years. Maybe that's just a time frame. probably even over the next six months. How can I think about wearing different things or continuing to find new models for, yeah, consumption essentially and reducing my consumption of, of new products? I don't know if that's also just because I'm a poor founder at the moment <laughs> and that comes with the job, but that's my current thought process of trying to do something impactful uh, is reducing consumption through my wardrobe. I also do that. What's an interesting climate fact that you didn't know 
that you were amazed to find out on this journey? Yeah, I think one recently that I wasn't aware of is that, uh, and this is more of a like historical one, but there is more CO2 actually in the ocean than there is in the atmosphere. And for a long time, there was uh, people that believed that that was going to be the solution and we weren't going to have this problem because a lot of it would return back down to, to the ocean, but it didn't. Um, it actually has been stuck in the atmosphere uh, and that's what's, yeah, so it was just interesting. I think that was more in the 50s and the 60s, but um, yeah, interesting fact. And I still think that the ocean has a massive role in us uh, reversing the, the problem that we have, but it was just interesting to see how our understanding and knowledge has come so far in, in a short amount of time. Yeah, it's true. It was just um, out last night and someone was saying, oh yeah, the Amazon is the lungs of the world. And it's like, no, not really. The oceans are the lungs of the world. Like it just doesn't doesn't look as good on, on an image when you do that though. So. Mangrove forest. Yeah, mangroves, absolutely. So, so many parts to it. Alex, you're on your journey and you're by no means finished, but we hope that there's lots and lots of companies that get started to solve these big problems. For early first-time entrepreneurs, like what's one thing that you would like to share that might help people in their journey? Yeah, I think there's many things that I would do differently, but everything is easy in hindsight. Probably the most impactful thing that I think about still a lot even now is actually having a really strong grip on where you're at as a business. And sometimes it's not where you want to be uh, or it's not where other people expect you to be. And that can influence conversation significantly. And I feel as though it's a, a bit of a trap founders find themselves in is they are just trying to be something that they're not. And that's not going to get you anywhere. So if you're pre-product market fit, then own it and tell people that you're pre-product market fit, even if it's taking you longer than you expected. Uh, if you're not ready to commercialize, don't assume just because the timeline suggests that you should go to market with your product. So I think there's a lot of wisdom in just being really honest with where are you at as a business and, and owning it. Thank you so much, Alex. This is a really uh, whet the appetite for those climate curious to understand that there is a plethora of solutions out there and to understand the nature-based and the natural capital world so much better. So thank you for letting us dive into your Cecil world, cecil.earth and discover more. And also to give us that hope, we need more product builders like you building as many products for these solutions definitely gives me hope and charlotte i'm going to get to throw in a dad joke here you mentioned plethora and um charlotte taught me what plethora means the other day and um you know and that means a lot so thanks charlotte <laughs> you know i actually can't stand it when people use it in sentences and as soon as i said it, i was like damn it i did it i meant to be like diverse yeah the breadth well, uh, if plethora is the keyword of this conversation, it's it's different from our first, the keyword of our first conversation with Olympia, which you'll have to listen to it to uh, to work out what it was. But um, yeah. there's a plethora of companies, plethora of opportunities, and a plethora of plethoras, which I don't know may have its own name. Oh gosh, we've ended on a on a nice light note. All right, I'm looking at the thesaurus, and I'm getting more words in that vocab of mine. A plethoras. Oh, <laughs> Alex, thanks so much for sharing. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing uh, your your journey and the, the work you're doing at Cecil and your contribution to the climate tech ecosystem here in Australia. And uh, yeah, but best of luck for keep it growing. Thanks so much, Megan Charlotte. Good to be here.